this morning. Thank you, worship team, choir, um, everyone. Good to be with you here in Norwalk. And boy, it's great to just sing, uh, prayerfully sing how great God is. And in just a few moments, we're going to see how great God is as we look at Scripture together. We'll be in Revelation chapter 22, if you want to turn there. But let me just say, first of all, in two weeks, we begin a new study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'm looking forward to that. But next weekend, I really hope you're here because it's all about next steps. We're going to be walking through Scripture and exploring what, what do next steps look like for us in our own spiritual journeys. We're also individual. We're also different. What, what would it look like for you, for me, to take a next step in our spiritual journey? That's next weekend. So hope you are here. All right? Great. Hey, let's get on to the book of Revelation. And um, I was thinking about Jesus's words, which we're going to look at in a few moments. I am coming soon. That's what he says. That is a phrase we hear a lot, coming soon. Maybe it's a a restaurant uh, that's going to finally show up in your area, it's coming soon. Or maybe you have a favorite author, their new book is coming out, coming soon. Or it's a, a concert you want to go to, coming soon. Uh, there's even a website called comingsoon.net, which gives you an idea of what videos are on the horizon, coming soon. Uh, it kind of speaks to the idea of anticipation. And that's really what the book of Revelation is about. It, it helps us to anticipate the coming of Jesus. Coming soon to a planet near you is Jesus Christ himself. And when he comes, what we've learned in Revelation is that that, that question that's sprinkled through Scripture and, and shows up in our hearts from time to time. How long, O oh Lord, how long will you let evil persist? That question will be answered as all as all pain and tears and death are, are put away forever, as Satan and his minions are put away for vanquished forever. And when Jesus comes again, you know, all of those things we enjoy in life, that aroma that you just wish wouldn't go away, that beautiful vista, that relationship in which you feel loved or, or you love, or that taste of food that just but, it, but it, it is also, it's also temporary, and yet, like a signpost, it points to something more. And one day, all of those things will be permanent, not temporary, as God himself comes to live among us. That's exciting. Um, chapter 22. That's the last chapter in the book of Revelation. That's the last chapter in the Bible, and we're going to be looking at it today. We've been in Revelation for 16 weeks, I think it is. The chapel's never done anything that long. So congratulations, making it through. I look forward to looking at this chapter with you, and then at the very end of the service, we're going to read the very last words in the Bible together and bring a close to this study of Revelation. Um, but chapter 22, I want to show you how it begins. It begins with, you know, Paul is a, is a poet, and so he uses... Uh, imagery and, and metaphors to, to describe the indescribable. And so chapter 22 begins with a, a description of heaven itself. And this is the way it goes. That's not it. That's me. So, well, there we go. You just got a glimpse of heaven right there. Um, okay, here we, here we go. Then the angel, I'm glad my wife's not here. Uh, 
Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of Main Street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. So we come to a close of the description of heaven. There's a little bit more in the preceding chapter, chapter 21. But now what John does as he comes to the end of this revelation is he hangs out the coming soon sign. And these are the next words. Then the angel said to me, Everything you have heard and seen as trustworthy and true, the Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. Look, Jesus says, I am coming soon. It says it three times in the book of Revelation. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. What does soon mean? You know, in my home, it's a relative term. If my wife says, Jay, this project needs to be done soon. I'm thinking, okay, I know what soon means. It's a very relative term. And maybe how you see soon is different how somebody else has seen soon. What does soon mean? It comes from a word where we get the word taxi. Kind of interesting. Soon does not mean immediately or necessarily in a very short time, but rather without delay. In other words, you can go to the bank. You can count on it. You can bet on it that Jesus is coming. Nothing's going to get in his way, stop him. There's nothing that will delay him outside of what he ordains. Nothing. He's coming soon, according to his time schedule. Now, <clears throat> there have been, you know, since Christ, in the history of Christianity, and maybe you know this, I enjoy history, here's a slice of history. Every generation of Christians has, has had somebody who just becomes fixated on when Jesus is coming again. I'll tell you one story. This is one of the more popular stories. It comes from the 1800s, the 1830s, 1840s. There was a guy by the name of William Miller here in the United States, North America. He became a Baptist minister, and he spent so much time studying the apocalyptic literature in the book of Daniel and studying the, the book of Revelation that he became convinced he knew when Jesus was going to return. And so he wrote a book in 1836. And in this book, he declares that within a year, ready for the date, within a year of March 21, 1843, Jesus will come again. Hundreds of thousands of people became his followers. They were known as Millerites. And they got rid of their, many of them got rid of their worldly possessions, believing Jesus was coming. I'm ready, I'm ready. The year passes, nothing. Ah, back to the chalkboard, like many of them do. Ah, got to redo this calculation. Okay, here's the exact date. Maybe your birthday is October 22, 1844. Midnight. Watching the clock. Well, they didn't have watches, but you, the, 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 the 24 hour pass. Nothing. Jesus does not show up. What a disappointment. In fact, it became known as the Great Disappointment. Before William Miller, after William Miller, many people have tried to determine when is Jesus coming. And, I, and even today, people are certain that it's, it's got to be soon because all of the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes that Jesus talked about. 
but nobody really knows for sure. Jesus himself said even the angels don't know, the Son himself doesn't know, the Father knows. What do we know? What do we know for sure? We do know a couple things. One is that we're a day closer than we were yesterday to Jesus coming again. And we do know that God operates according to his own timetable. Maybe you thought I would show the verses I'm about to show you because it speaks to this whole idea of our time versus God's time. It's what Peter writes in his second letter. It goes like this. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Why this apparent delay? If you are a Christ follower, more than anything, God wants you to grow, grow close to Christ, to grow in Christ-likeness. We'll talk about that later in the service. But you may have friends or family members, or you yourself may still be far from God. You've never put your trust in Christ. And God is waiting for more and more people to do that. Between this day and that day, when he comes again. Now, what do we do between this day and that day when he comes again? The rest of chapter 22 are like principles that we are given on how to live. Years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? What a great question. How should we then live in light of eternity? How should we then live in this span between now and when Jesus comes, whenever that is? How should we then live? And these principles flow right out of Revelation chapter 22. I want to share several of them with you. So, while we wait, here is the first one. We are to keep his word. No surprise there. That's found throughout Scripture. This is what's written. Look, I am coming soon, Jesus says. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Now it says this book. That means the book of Revelation, but that's consistent with all of Scripture. We're to keep all of God's word. So we're to keep his word. Blessed are those who do that. The word blessed there, it's, it's a beatitude. Maybe you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. You have a number of, you know, blessed are you, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for uh, they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, and so on and so on. What does blessed mean? I think, for me, I like to describe it like this. It means to be happy deep down. I mean, like, settled deep down. Why? How? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you're being shown clearly what the values of the kingdom of God are, what, what God really highly values, and when you align yourself with those values, oh, happy deep down. I'm living the way God designed me to live. Now, out of the Sermon on the Mount into Revelation, there are actually seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. In chapter 22, there are two of them. This is the first one. Blessed are those who keep God's word. Happy are those who decide that they are going to live how God has shown us to live in his word. Happy deep down. But we all have a choice. Scripture is so clear. You, it's, it, you have a choice. God has done his part. We have a choice. 
And that's clear. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Proverbs. I've talked about it before in this, in, in, in this room, and, and maybe it's one of your favorites as well. But, but it, it's unmistakable. When you look at the book of Proverbs, it's about two paths in life. There's the path of folly. There's the path of wisdom. You can choose the middle path, but if you take that, by default, you end up on the path of folly. The path of wisdom is characterized by somebody who fears God. What does that mean? It means somebody who takes God and his word seriously. And when a person does that, what happens is they begin to grow wise over time. And what is wisdom? It means that somebody who is morally skillful and mentally discerning, who doesn't want that? Happy deep down is the person who is morally skillful and mentally discerning. In the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end, Jesus talks about two foundations for a house when storms come. You want your house built on the sand, or do you want to build on a rock? Happy, happy deep down is the person who has their house built on a solid foundation, which is God's Word. In Revelation, at the very beginning, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. You can open the door of your life and let me in, or just keep it closed and I'll stay out. Happy deep down is the person that, who lets Jesus come in. Happy deep down, but the choice is yours. It's not just about the here and now. It's also about the future. We read in a few verses later, Look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. Jesus says, bring with him a reward according to our deeds. Our deeds are good works. They, they, they do matter. They do matter. I mean, we're saved by grace alone. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Revelation chapter 20, and in there we read about the great white throne judgment. That's for those who have said no to God all their lives. I don't want the gift of Jesus. No, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you. And they end up with an eternity of no God. But Christians, we ourselves will stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ, and Jesus will reward us according to how faithful we've been, how we've used the time, talents, and treasures he's given us to advance the kingdom of God. Well, as we said a couple weeks ago, we'll all be on the, the, the Olympic podium. We'll all receive medals. I mean, Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, they'll get gold medals. I'll get a different color, I'm sure of that. But, but, but Christ, Christians will be rewarded according to their faithfulness. We are to keep his word between now and when he comes again. I like what this author says. He says, Scripture is not a passive cadaver waiting for curious medical students to dissect it in their quest for information. Scripture isn't about just intellectual knowledge. It is living, scripture is living, double-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of the triumphant Son of Man and pierces the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It is a hammer that shatters, a seed that grows, rainfall that never returns to its uh, giver without accomplishing the mission for, on which he sent it. Scripture, ha- I love this line, scripture has a job to do in us. Do you believe that? As we keep his word, God's word will do a work in in us by the strength of his spirit who lives within every true Christ follower. Now, between this day and that day, we are called to keep his word. This is something, another principle that flows out of this chapter. We are to worship God alone. And this is what we read. I, John, am the one who heard and saw all these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets, as well as all who obey what is written in this book. 
Worship only God. Now, John must have been thinking, this is deja vu. Because if you think back to chapter 19, the angel said the very same thing to him. Quit worshiping me. Worship God. What John fell into was what we might call misplaced worship. Misplaced worship. All all of us in this room and everybody outside this room, we all have things in common, don't we? We all breathe air. We all have blood circulating through our veins. We all um, eat food. We drink water. We emote. We we cry. We're happy. We laugh. And we worship. We are worshiping creatures. Over the years, because I'm involved with missions, I've had a chance to visit a lot of different places around the world. And I remember standing in a place where people worshiped a tree and the ancestors connected with that tree. But you go to Africa, they build little houses in the backyard where the ancestors live. They worship their ancestors. In India, they'll worship one of three million gods. In other places, they'll worship a statue. We, we are worshiping people all over the world. What is worship? Worship means that we ascribe value to something, some worth to something. It's worth-ship, worship. And, and the, the problem is it, we can actually begin to uh, align our allegiances and our affections with something other than God. And when we do that, then it is misplaced worship. And, and that's a problem that is universal. It's a problem for each of us. It can be misplaced worship. The other day I was asked to go downtown Sandusky to just help lead a prayer for a a building. They were dedicating a a building to a particular minister, and I was glad to do that. And I found myself praying what I often pray before a meal or with a group of people where we were thanking God for something. And I found myself quoting what's found in the the letter of James, where where he simply writes, every good gift is from above. It's from God. Every good gift. And let's just think for a moment. In that case, it was the building. Thank you, God, for this building. But in our case, what are you thankful for? You're probably thankful for your health, thankful for a relationship, different things you possess, different things you can do, maybe the influence you have in your community, um, the the education you have. Grateful for a lot of different things. The, the, the The problem always is... Let me just say, John, John received a message from the angel, and he fell down and worshipped this angel with the message. But that was misplaced worship. He should have been worshipping the one who gave the angel and the message. And we can end up worshipping the very things we were given rather than the one who gave them to us. We're to worship God alone and not the stuff around us. So we are to keep God's word. That's one principle that flows out of this chapter. We are to worship God alone. Let's go to a third one. We are to embrace God's work of grace. Then he instructed me, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. Let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. What does that mean? Let the one who is righteous continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to be holy. 
for uh, a lot of years when I was a pastor at the chapel in Akron, I worked with uh, a lead pastor there who, he, he had little, little one-liners, and one of the things he often said was, it's, it's nothing profound, but it means something, um, that simply this, people do what they want to do. <laughs> people do what they want to do. I, I, can, I can sit around and just stew over how a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. Or uh, why would they be doing that again? I, I don't understand why they would seek to hurt somebody or why they would say that or why they would do that. And I can give all kinds of attention. Why would they be vile? Why would they seek to harm somebody? Why did that happen? And then I have to realize, wait, people do what they want to do. What do I do? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, I stand before Jesus not accounting for anybody else, but for me. Now, I should, if somebody is behaving in ways they shouldn't, I should try to be an example. I should try to speak truth into their life, certainly pray for them. But at the end of the day, I stand before Jesus. I have to give account for me. People do what they want to do. And so that's why Jesus says this. Don't worry about the other person. Let, let one who is righteous continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to live holy. When I was age 20, I, I embraced Christ as my Savior. And at that point, I was made righteous. I'm not saying I live righteously. I'm saying I was made righteous. The Bible is so clear. Everybody in the world, there, it says it numerous times, there is no one righteous. There is no one righteous at all. There is no one who can stand before a holy and perfect God on their own. Nobody. What we need is the righteousness that only God provides for us. And so out of sheer grace, out of sheer grace, God gives us Jesus, who takes our sin onto himself and gives us the gift of righteousness And we personalize that by asking Christ to be our Savior. And then that righteousness becomes yours. And that's how we stand before a holy God. You are made righteous, but you are made righteous to live righteously. And that is a lifelong process. For me, it's three steps forward, two steps back. I'm made righteous, but to live righteous. I'm made holy to to be holy. People do what they want to do. But I want to ask you, what do you want to do? If you are a Christian, you are made righteous. But to live righteously. Jesus says it a different way. Uh, Blessed are those who wash their robes. That doesn't mean are you washing your clothes. What What it means is happy deep down. Here's the last beatitude of Revelation. Happy deep down is the person who knows they've been cleansed by God through Christ. Happy deep down is the person who knows they've been forgiven, cleansed, and now seeks to live a Christ-like life. Like I said, a three steps forward, two steps back process, but we're on our way. Now, how do you do that? Well, we already said it. How do you live righteously? We keep God's word. We worship God alone. 
And those things never happen in a vacuum. They happen in the context of relationships. I'm glad we talked about small groups at the start of the service. We learn how to love each other. One day Jesus was asked, what is the most important command in all of the Bible? And he simply said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We learn how to love each other when in the context of relationships. Live righteously. That's what we're called to do. Keep God's word. Worship God alone. Embrace his grace. But there's a last one. It goes like this. Come to Jesus. This is, this is what Jesus says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I, I am both the root of the covenant that was made with David and the heir of that covenant. I am the bright morning star. That means I am the light of all salvation for all people. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that is the church itself, that's us, Say, come, let anyone who hears this say, come, let anyone who is thirsty, come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. We all need physical water when we're thirsty, but we need water for our souls. You know, when my, when my dad was, was passing away seven years ago, September 8th, for several days before that, I sat by his bedside and read different scripture to him, but there was one there was one passage that I read over and over and over where I never had to look at the Bible. I just quoted it. And you know it. It's from Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Don't you love that at the, at the very end of the Bible, here is this invitation that we find from the very beginning to the Bible and in Jesus' ministry is just come back to God. God has made us for himself. And Jesus says, come to me. He said it to his disciples, come, follow me. And even today, he says to us, come to me. Come to me. If, if you are broken, I can give you healing. Come to me. If you are hurting, I can, I can fix some things. Come to me if you've really blown it. I can, I can forgive you. Come to me if you're lacking hope. I can inject courage into you. Come to me if you've lost your way. I can give you direction. If you're just thankful, come to me. I'll take that too. Just come to me. If you've never come to Jesus at all, Come to me, I will give you life, eternal life. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song that says, Come to the altar. It just means come to God. It's a beautiful prayer. Can we make it our prayer as we close the book of Revelation? Let's pray together. Are you hurt? 